my gosh, this is a fun one, Revler. So strap in, get ready to learn about lots of fun things. Like, did you know that I ever cross-dressed? Uh, not only did I do that, but I forgot. So you'll find out a lot of stuff. But there's just such a depth of topics and issues and revelations and awesomeness that the list could go on and on. And I just love my friend Tris, and I think that you will too. And as any good Californian, she says in here that she had a therapist. So let me take this moment to say therapy is not just for Californians. It's about personal growth and dealing with issues and deciding to just be healthier and do better because you want to break out of cycles that are holding you back from your power and greatness. And come on, we're at the end of 2020. This is the time to say, what can I leave behind? What can I fix and embark on the new year? We're coming up to Thanksgiving. So I am very grateful and thankful that BetterHelp, that's Better H-E-L-P, has decided to sponsor this podcast. The holidays can be rough um, 2020 has been rough and the holidays in 2020 might be awesome or may be rough for you. And either way, it's okay. Please do not hesitate to go to my website, follow the link, check out BetterHelp, decide that you are not alone. There's a million people already in therapy. You can have a breakthrough and 2021 can be a breakthrough year. So please check out BetterHelp. Two important caveats here, Revelers. One, ooh, it is hard to do an interview the first thing in the morning. We both sound rough in the beginning of this interview, but we warm up, which is nice. And then secondly, if you have not listened to the Pam Martin episode, it's called RBG and Pam Martin are exceptionally good. You'll want to listen to it first because it's not just reference in here, but it's the launch pad for this episode. So please stop, go check that one out, enjoy that one, and then come back to this one. And now, without further ado, I hope you really enjoy Tristan Higgins. Hello, and welcome to Revel Revel. I am Lauren Drabble, and today I have my dear friend Tristan Higgins on the podcast. Hey, Lauren. <laughs> I'm like, it's time to say hi, Tris. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> How are you? I am well. I mean, it's early, but I have my coffee. It is early. Good. So thank you for making time. So as you know, because you've listened to a few episodes, we always yes. start off with how we know each other. And uh, you've probably heard enough episodes to know that I have a terrible memory. So please do not get angry at me if I have forgotten something that's so monumental to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's, here's where we have a problem because you're my memory when it comes to Uh-oh. anything from high school, right? Like, we, I'll be, I'll see someone or they'll reach out to me on Facebook and then I'm texting you, Hey, do I know this person? <laughs> uh, so I don't remember how we met, honestly. I just know that we were fast friends. Um, and I think 
so- your sophomore, right? Sophomore year yeah. uh-huh. through the end of our junior year. And then I sort of had some issues that took me away. But I think you and Monica and I were pretty much uh, thick as thieves. In fact, I thought I was your best friend. So when I listened to that podcast, I thought, oh, no. <laughs> oh, I don't want to start off with heartbreak already. No, no, it was all right. It was all right. I'm, uh, so, yeah, that's how we know each other. Uh, Mount Carmel, um, I remember spending time at your house and, you know, laughing our asses off, um, listening to music. You were my introduction to alternative music, 91X nice. and whatnot. I didn't really have any insight into that. And you certainly did. So that's my <laughs> memory. <laughs> So, you know, it's funny that you say about not realizing that you're someone's best friend or whatever, because it's so much about proximity in some ways, you know, like we hung out probably as much as possible, but you were an RB and Monica and I were just like five doors away from each other. Right. And you, you know, you can't say that that doesn't add up to stuff because like, look at who you work with and who you spend all your time with. It just changes the relationships. It, it definitely does. I'm glad you listened to the Monica episode and I'm glad you actually brought up the whole issue thing because, you know, I just want to go on record and say that we are so sorry that we didn't support you better during that time that we had like, where is Tris? We don't know. Okay. Moving on. Instead of like stopping and saying, how do we help her? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I guess for the for your people who are listening, um, I joined not intentionally um, a cult, for lack of a better word. And I've written about this before, so it's I'm happy to talk about it. But um, as a super conservative fringe Christian origin, and uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, I didn't know what was happening, and so I couldn't ask for help. And I, you know, was falling in love with a friend of mine. I didn't know I was gay yet, so. Oh, it was just a horrible, horrible period in my life. And it took me about, oh gosh, three years, I think, to, to kind of break free. There was a lot of back and forth. But my mom even talked to a deprogrammer, right? Somebody oh. to like come and kidnap me. And, and, and uh, yeah, so it was, it was bad. And I missed out on all that fun stuff from senior year with you and Monica and Pam and Margaret and just a bunch of other people. And I, you know, I never get that back. So, but it's not your fault. And <laughs> my goodness. Well, you know, as an adult, I can say that it is not my fault, but it also is that we should have done something more. We should have tried harder. You know, friendships are so weird how they come and go and they flow. And if someone distances themselves, you're like, in some ways traumatized and in some ways, whatever, moving on. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that we tried as much as we should have. So that's that's what we need to own, you know? Mm. Well, thank you. I, I mean, I no. was a terrible friend. So <laughs> I, I, I own well, that as well. And my mother never lets me forget it. <laughs> oh, wow. Great, mom. So, you know, the theme of the podcast is about your life stories that have weird, interesting, particularly things that you couldn't plan for or explain or whatever these moments that set you on your path or changed your path or whatever. And obviously we all have portions of our life that we wish never happened or, you know, lots of regrets, but they also make us who we are and they bring you to where you are and stuff. And so, you know, that period, I'm sure changed your trajectory in some ways. How did that work once you got out? What, what did you do differently once you got out of that cult? 
Well, I mean, it changed my life in so many ways. Um, people who know me now can't even believe that I was in a cult because I'm so opinionated and so difficult to, I mean, I'm, I'm a really good arguer. I'm a professional arguer, right? Hmm. But that all happened there. That I, I learned that there. I learned that fighting with the church elders and, you know, pouring over Bible verses and arguing with them about, you know, what they were saying were the the beliefs. And that really became kind of my new core, really strength. And in an, I don't know, like an inability to let anyone manipulate me. <laughs> I mean, of course, other than a pretty, pretty woman, but no, I'm just joking. <laughs> so, you know, I became a lesbian, obviously, or was a lesbian and figured it out. And so I can thank the, I can thank the church and God for that. And I had a horrible, horrible motorcycle accident right around the same time that this was all happening. I had left the the cult and was living by myself for the first time after breaking up with my second girlfriend. Remember, this is like 18 years old, right? So don't judge. And <laughs> I, uh, I no, didn't no have judging a, here. Okay, good. I didn't have any money. So I like scraped together $250 to buy a, a motorcycle and I was taking it back and forth to UCSD where, you know, I was meant to go to UC Irvine for theater because it's one of the best theater schools in the country. But because of the cult, I didn't want to leave the church to go to UC Irvine. So I was able to last minute get into UCSD. And when I needed to get back and forth to class, I was taking the motorcycle. I only had it for three weeks before I was hit and just my entire life changed, right? My, my legs were, both my legs were broken, every bone in my right leg, my I'm sorry, every bone in my left leg. It's been a while now. And my right, <laughs> my right knee was crushed. I coded, so I technically died a few times, uh, wow. three, three to be exact. And I was in the hospital for a long time. And then after that, I was at home with my folks. And so that was really the healing that needed to happen because I, my mom and dad had kicked me out and I had just you know burned every bridge that I had. And so that accident really allowed us as a family to come back together. So that was good. You know, that was very positive. And through the accident and my recovery, I met my, uh, a long-term partner that I had for many years who, that's how I have my children. Right? So, you know, I wouldn't have the children that I have if it hadn't been for the accident. You know, I have a 17-year-old and a 13-year-old who we had together. And, you know, if I'd been with somebody different, literally we would have picked a different sperm donor because we picked a sperm donor that was kind of like her. And so oh. my two beautiful children would not exist if it wasn't for the accident. So I don't even regret the accident. I, in fact, we started, we started this chat talking about how I had so much pain last night that I had to take medication. But even still, I, don't, I wouldn't change it, right? Because it changed my entire life. And that kind of pain which I deal with on a daily basis uh, to more or less degree and have had 18 different surgeries as a result. Well, sorry, not all 18 are related to the accident because there's a couple of C-sections and like a wisdom tooth, but uh, the rest of them are all related to my legs. And it allows me, I think, a tremendous amount of empathy mm -hmm. <laughs> with people. And I have what you would call an invisible di disability because nobody can see it. So I have to deal with that on a daily basis, but I'm also lucky, blessed, whatever the word is, to not be in a wheelchair, right? So right. it's a kind of a blessing and a curse. So as far as the accident is concerned, which was 1991, so you know, really a long time ago, 
I mean, it changed my life. And, and perhaps, uh, I can't believe I didn't mention this one. I had an attorney who was helping me with the aftermath of the accident. He was my mom and dad's family, you know, family attorney helping them with, I don't know, whatever, like financial stuff. And we asked him to represent me and I negotiated his fee. Like I was a 21 year old or 20 year old. And I, 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 I strung out on pain meds <laughs> <laughs> and I, I talked him down from his normal, you know, contingency fee, a couple percentage points. And he said to me, uh, nobody's ever negotiated this fee before. Have you thought about becoming a lawyer? <laughs> and I said, no, but you know, now I am. And he was so wonderful. He really was like a white knight. I've described him. Um, multiple times because before that I thought lawyers just chased ambulances and bothered people and things like that. And he was really just wonderful. He, and and I, I mean, I still know him, Ed Walton. He's a really wonderful man. And I mean, I wouldn't be a lawyer if it wasn't for that. Right. So that's just so many, you can't even unpack it. There's no way to separate the bad from the good. Right. And I think that's perfectly said because if they're interwoven and you try to remove the bad, you lose the good. So, so let's right. go back. You, why did you want to study theater? Like what, what took you to that interest? What made you think that that's what you want to do and that you'd be good at and all that stuff? Okay. So from, uh, I mean, I remember getting, I got an award in fourth grade for being the best singer, theater, the whole nice. bit. It was just ever since I was a tiny kid. And I don't know. I mean, some people are just like that, right? They're gregarious. They, they need the applause. They, you know, we, we aren't comfortable just doing our daily work. We need people to, you know, acknowledge us every second <laughs> in, the, in the negative sense. But I really just enjoyed it. I had so much fun as a kid and I thought, oh my gosh, this is what I want to do. And so I was going to college uh, for theater and then I had the accident. I had to drop out. And I decided that maybe I, you know, maybe I could finish school because I had been taking my time because I was paying for it myself, uh, mm-hmm. still paying for it myself. And mm-hmm. the the lawyer that I was talking about, I said to him, "Well, what, what I what would I do if I wanted to, if I wanted to become a lawyer?" And he said, "Well, don't change your major because that's super boring. You know, do what you want to do, but take as many writing classes as you can." And so oh. I added in a bunch of literature. In fact, I would say it's one of the only regrets I have. I, try, I really do try to live without regrets. And I regret not finishing a minor in queer literature. Oh. So, and I didn't finish the minor. I stopped like two credits short because I didn't want it on my transcript oh. to come out for me. And can you, can you imagine me not wanting to come out? Like I just can't even believe it. And so, yeah. So theater, I love theater. I'm, I'm drawn to it. I, I love theater people. I did all kinds of shows in, co- in high school, in college. I remember, in fact, we did our lip sync. Frankie Goes to Hollywood lip sync. Mm-hmm. Do you remember? I know you said you oh, have a terrible course. memory, but okay. No, right, that, just, just checking. That's in there. All right. And in fact, I met somebody the other day through my lawyer's group who saw us do that because she went to Mount <gasps> Carmel. And so she said, I remember you. And so I said, I was the drummer. I mean, little did I know it was like my first experience with cross-dressing, right? In public, you know, pretending to be a man. <laughs> Well, okay. So let's fill people into <laughs> Okay. So, cuz unfortunately or maybe fortunately there are no photos of this. So, we'll have to just set the scene with our words and back in the 80s, 
there was a thing called air bands and <laughs> air bands was basically lip syncing, but without the negative connotation of cheating. <laughs> and so, so we decided you, me and Monica decided to do an air band version of relax by Frankie goes Hollywood. And we did that at Mount Carmel. And I remember that, but I remember it in an outer body way. I can't actually remember being on stage or anything. Can you? I, yes, I can. Okay. I, I remember, I mean, I had the mustache because I was the drummer and I wore one of my dad's blazers. Uh, it was so much fun. And I, what I remember is I think we had somebody who was supposed to be our fourth who canceled and we found someone else to do it. Was her name Angela? Oh, wow. I totally forgot that. I pictured just Angela. the three of us. I think there was a fourth person and we did it at the Del Mar Fair because we won at Mount Carmel. Yes. And then we went and did it at the Del Mar Fair and it was just a blast. And I cannot think of a less appropriate song for high school students to do now that I listen <laughs> to it as an adult. But, uh, you, you know, we have a sort of for, for those younger people who might be listening, it's like a guitar hero meets masked singer. Right. That's kind of what. Oh, that's really good. Super cool. Yeah. Right. That sounds that sounds pretty cool. So and whenever you have a mashup, <laughs> it's way cooler. Right. Right. So, right. So what's funny is I remember the Del Mar Fair, but I don't remember this fourth person. Maybe we just focus on each other. I don't know. But mm -hmm. I remember being blazing hot and we're melting in our outfits and makeup and stuff. And I didn't know that uh, this was your first time cross-dressing and I didn't even think of it as cross-dressing, although <laughs> senior, and that was junior year, right? Right. Yeah. Yes. See, senior year, everyone, it seems, was doing cross-dressing, especially at the air bands, because if you remember, David Bologna had an air band with, I don't remember everyone who was in it, but definitely it was Dave Dixon and Martin Yuson, and they were doing the um, Robert Palmer, I didn't mean to turn you on, again, <laughs> inappropriate, right? And, and instead of the girls in the background, I'm going to have to put a link to the original video in my show notes here. Oh my gosh. So the original girls are, you know, all slicked back, heavy, make it a bit tiny, tiny skirts. And they, the boys dressed as girls, as the backup girls for it and did like a little dance and everything. And there's a picture in the yearbook with Martin Yuson wearing my turtleneck and skirt. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we all just like had fun and shared that stuff and didn't care, you know? Right. You know, it's funny. I, I joke cross-dressing. I don't know if I've ever called it that before for myself, but in high school, I was really feminine. I mean, there's a picture that's sort of legion or legend, right? Where I'm in my in the quad with the microphone. I've got the pearls and the sweater mm -hmm. vest. Very Barbara Bush-esque. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Except, except with short hair and my huge Sally Jesse Raphael glasses. Yes. And so it was after <laughs> that that I really... I, I mean, I struggled. It took me years to come into my own and to feel comfortable in the way I present to the world. And I have finally identified myself as a butch lesbian, which is a very particular identity. And I have been so for, well, I guess you could say your whole life, but I don't think that's really true because I think I evolved over time. But certainly the last 20 years, I have, have been this way, almost exclusively men's clothing, except for the things that you can imagine you can't be. And, but I remember when I got sworn in as a city attorney, I used to wear skirt suits every day to court with my pearls. And I still got served. Everyone, sir, can I, you know, the, sir, this, really? sir, that. Oh, yeah. Cause, you know, I'm 5'10 and I was a little skinnier then, but I'm big, you know, big shoulders, swimming, weightlifting. 
And I think it's just, honestly, Laura, I think it's confidence. I think that confidence in our society is significantly believed to be male. And so when you walk into a room, and it doesn't matter how tall you are, I, I uh, of the opinion that when you walk into a room and you're confident and you're not apologizing, people read that immediately as male mm. or Beyonce. I mean, either way, really, right. I think, you know. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> Who rules the world? Yep, exactly. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, okay. So it's funny about how did we get onto the um, Del Mar Fair and the air bands? You how asked we- me how I became a theater person. Yes. Yes. And so I took that love of theater and became an entertainment lawyer. So, you know, I had this very distinct moment where I thought I was with, I was with somebody at the time, the, the woman I was with for a very long time. And well, before this very long time, mm-hmm. <laughs> my, my wife would be like, wait, what, what happened? Why didn't you yeah. mention me? Yeah. And I thought, wow, if I were to become a director, which is what I wanted to do, I would be out of work every six months, even mm. if I was really good and really busy, Right. And I would constantly be judged only by my most recent project. And that's a tough life. And honestly, I decided I want a family. And that means I need a steady salary. So I sold out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I decided, okay, let me be an entertainment lawyer. And then I can represent the people who didn't make the decision that I made, the people that were brave enough to keep following that passion. And I've never regretted that either. There have been times in my life where I've needed a little more creativity but I was very happy to become an entertainment lawyer. And I did that for multiple companies in multiple capacities for almost 20 years. So I think it was a good decision. I agree. And I think that it's funny that, you know, many, many times before I started this podcast, if you had said, you know, what kind of people, what kind of professions did our graduating class go into? I would always say, we've got a ton of teachers, we've got a ton of lawyers. And I'm not sure what that means. But what I've realized doing this podcast is that I know a lot of people who are either in theater, former theater, you know, secretly wish they had stayed in theater, you know, whatever. And that there's so many of that from my life in general, but especially our class. And I don't know what that means either. Mm. You know, like, I think you always had a flair for the dramatic. Yes. Yes. And I think it's interesting that you have said before publicly that you kind of looked at going in front of a, a judge and jury as performing, you yes. know, like being on stage. Wow. How did you remember that? Uh, I definitely did. And I think it made me a really good trial attorney. I was always aware of the jury and they're really the audience. And it's got to be a hundred times worse now than it was when I did this, which was back in 97. The, you know, every crime show sets a standard for lawyers to be these gifted William Shakespeare type on their feet orators, and we just aren't. And so if if someone is, and I I am, and now I'm a professional speaker, then they do well, because you've got to keep people's attention. If you want them to rule for you, they have to not fall asleep. And so I, on occasion, even clapped my hands really loudly in a courtroom in order to make sure, because you can't can't say juror number six, uh, wake up. Right. Because then they'll be, you know, embarrassed and they'll rule against you. Right. Yeah. So you have to find clever ways to do, oh, drop my book. Sorry. Or I'm clapping. But I I loved it. And I used to teach the other new attorneys, the new deputy city attorneys, a little bit about cross-examination. And, you know, you never get that moment like in Law & Order, but you do get what you need. And when you learn how to do it, it's really very powerful, both opening and closing statements. So I can't believe you remember that. Well, 
I watched your podcast with your friend and you said something about it on there. So oh, gotcha. Gotcha. I got a, I got a little memory jog there. So <laughs> it was obviously a very lucrative, successful thing that you did with, you know, Sony and Sega, and you were with the Screen Actors Guild and all that stuff. But then you took a huge leap of faith to go out on your own. Mm-hmm. And so how did you, how did that evolve? How did that path take you? And how long? Because sometimes when you look back, it, it, everyone compresses their story. It makes it sound like I just did it and, it and it happened and it worked and it was fast. And it's like, no, sometimes it takes years, you know? Yes. Uh, I think it's taken me years. So my, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago, I realized that I wanted to be on the bench someday serving as a judge. And there are, there's no direct path for that, uh, but you have to be kind of in the right place at the right time in your career and know enough people and have done a good job and not, you know, really irritate the crap out of anyone. And I thought, okay, well, someday I'll do that. But when I was first approached about it, honestly, I was like, I can't afford to take that pay cut because it was, mm. you know, it's, it's a public service position as it should be. And so I had a knee surgery, right? So reference the earlier uh, mm-hmm. accident. So a couple of years ago, I guess it was 2018, I had a cleanup surgery done on my left knee, which I'm about to have replaced now, by the way. Oh, so wow. That's fun. Okay. And in order to prepare for a full knee replacement for my right knee. So that was, that was, it was in June and I had like six weeks recovery before we went in for the knee replacement. So I was, I was taking leave and the knee replacement went really, really badly mm. and took me a couple of years to come back out of. I should have died again several times. I had a horrible infection inside the knee. They had to go back in. I had reactions to all the medication. I mean, it was just really, it was a nightmare. And I was really glad, I mean, you know, I had left my position after a couple months because I thought, you know, they were wonderful, but I just couldn't make them, I just couldn't make them wait any longer. Yeah. So when I, I mean, they were happy to, which is wonderful to their credit. But when I thought, oh my gosh, I don't have a job now. What do I want to be when I grow up? Right. I had this moment that you never really have if you're lucky enough to be employed, you know, consistently. And I have been. And when I was, when I had that, that sort of quiet time and I had many, many hours in bed, <laughs> mm-hmm. I thought, well, what do I want to do? And I realized, well, I really do want to sit on the bench. And now I'm not giving up a nice corporate salary to do so. So what can I do? Well, I got very serious about that and I applied last year. Uh, I'm still waiting. So who knows, you know, waiting for the governor, the the phone to ring. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, I thought, well, what else do I want to do? And I spoke with a career guidance person and she said, well, what would you do if you could do anything? And what a great question, right? Like I, Mm -hmm. I, I remember I was sitting at a Starbucks with her pre-COVID, no mask. And I said, I would get paid to speak. That's what I would do. I would be a professional speaker. And she said, okay, so why don't you do that? And I mean, Lauren, it's such a simple question, right? But I hadn't thought about it. I didn't, I hadn't even thought that I could do that. And I thought, well, what am I going to speak about? Well, diversity. I've been talking about diversity ever since I got into the professional space. I've been teaching other people. I've been always doing that as a free you know, not paid as part of my job, whether it's Sony or Sega or the city attorney's office or international corporations, different events. And so I set out to build 
this business. And I came up with the term Metaclusive, which is the name of my consulting firm. And the concept was meant to be, I haven't mentioned this yet, but I'm a huge superhero fanatic and Star Wars, you know, geek. I just love all of that stuff. In fact, while we're talking, I'm playing with a small unicorn squishy. Um, <laughs> so I, lo- I love all of that stuff. And I love the, you know, inclusive, right? Uh, obviously, that's a good word. I, I'm trying not to focus on diversity or inclusion because neither of those alone makes a difference in a, in a company. If you, you can have all the diversity in the world, but if people don't feel included, then they leave in any organization. It doesn't have to be a workplace organization. And so I really want to focus on belonging. And so I thought, well, and I worked at it. And, and I'll tell you, I made the right choice because if you type in Metaclusive, you get me. There's nobody else. That's right. I did so that. I, not, I do not have to pay Google for that. No, no offense, Google. But um, so, so that's, you know, that's what I do. I do organizational consulting kind of like overhaul work. Like if you're Jiffy Lube for diversity, go in there and, you know, lift up the hood and see where people need to make changes where they're really strong. And then keynote speaking and executive coaching, because, you know, sometimes the CEO wants to ask questions privately, make sure they don't offend anyone. And it's taken a while. And and I will tell you, I'm still just in the beginning of really making it work as far as money-wise, right? And my wife is being very patient. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I just, I, I love it. I, I love, I've never been able to work from home, really. I mean, occasionally, you know, if you're sick or something, but to be able to be home, to be here with the kids and what a blessing with the COVID, right? I mean, I was already home and yeah. so the kids came home and here I was and that was fantastic. It's been so neat. Uh, it's been so neat to have them here and to be here with them. You know, they're just on the other side of this wall right now. Everybody's got their own computer and their own headset. (laughs) (laughs) They're very quiet. That's just nice. That's right. um, So I don't ask the same questions to everybody. I think we're all different. And like whatever the conversation sort of prompts me to talk about is where I go. And sometimes, you know, I say, if there's a word, if you have one word that you could like synthesize your being down to, you know, what would it be? And I kind of think you know, belonging is your word. If you think about high school and what led you to the cult and then getting out of it and everything you've done since, it's all, it's all been towards this inclusive to make everyone feel like they belong, I think. Wow. That's, I mean, can you put that in writing and I'll put it on my website? Yes. Uh, I, it's, it's called a transcript. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that. And I, I think one of the reasons that I have been so far successful is that for me, the focus, so, all right. So we, we, I don't think in this day and age, we can talk about belonging without talking about racism and white privilege and sort of the Mm -hmm. blinders that we have on either intentionally or unintentionally. And the people, let's face it, the people that I need to reach in order to be effective are slightly older white men. And And that's a lot of lawyers. So that's the group, you know, right? Right. But you don't get anywhere by making them feel like crap. Right. Right. Yeah. And so what I realized is that if you focus on belonging, everyone wants to belong. And similar to high school where everyone thought everyone else was popular and it turns out nobody really felt popular. Mm -hmm. Our, our white friends, our, our male white friends also struggle with belonging to the tune of 40% of them. Mm. that don't feel they belong in the workplace or are hiding something about themselves. They don't feel like they can truly be themselves. So when I focus on belonging, I can talk to everybody 
and I don't have to leave out really the people who are the decision makers, frankly, and the, and those that can make the priority for a corporation, those that can make the, the focus for an organization, whether it's a university or, or a small medical group. Yeah. Belonging is it, right? Who, everybody wants to belong. Yeah. But how do you, how do you get your message to those guys particularly? I mean, there's the general marketing obviously thing, but I mean, specifically get it into their brains and their hearts that this is something that they should look into. Maybe they don't even see it as a, they need something to fix, but Mm. something that they need to investigate, shall we say? Well, it depends. I mean, if I'm talking to somebody at a cocktail party or a Zoom mixer, or I'm actually giving a, a talk, which, which environment do you, are you referencing right now? Oh, wow. Um, it's, it's quite a different conversation, right? I guess, I, uh, I guess let's start with your peers or, or people who would buy your services. Okay. So if I'm talking with people who I have a connection with, a personal connection with, I, well, first of all, I, I'm not very good at marketing myself. So we'll just start with that. But probably <laughs> anybody listening who's a marketer will be like, oh, Tristan, you need some help. But what I, I talk about, I talk about the percentages. I talk about the fact that belonging, the feeling of exclusion is costing businesses something like, well, it's a ridiculously high number <laughs> every year in lost profit, lost revenue, increased sick days. People who feel a high sense of exclusion take 50% more sick days, 75% oh, wow. more sick days. I, I don't have any of my stats on me because I didn't know we were going to talk about this, but the- I didn't either. So there you go. <laughs> the pe- people who feel included are 50% more productive. I mean, there's just a, there's a tremendous amount of money to be made by, and saved, but you know, both ways by focusing on making your employees feel it's kind of like morale, right? It's all tied together. It's morale. It's, it's, you know, feeling like you walk into the lunchroom and there's people you can sit with just, just like high school, right? You know, we all walk around feeling nervous that we, our fly is down or we have toilet paper on our shoe or we have spinach in our teeth. And if you can be in an environment where you don't feel that, people are loyal, they love it, they're, they're more innovative. And so I, when I talk to people, I talk about the numbers. And I, and I think people get irritated sometimes. Well, why do you have to talk about the numbers? You know, it's really just the right thing to do. And I say, yes, you're right. It's the right thing to do. But I'm not talking to a church or a religious group or a civic, civil service organization. I'm talking to a corporation. And corporations were formed with one goal in mind to make money for the shareholders. And so unless I can put it in terms of either making or saving money, why are they even bothering talking to me? Yeah. So there are plenty of speakers who approach it from that perspective of it's the right thing to do and we should all be doing that. But I almost always start with the numbers. And just a, the other thing I do, I think that is, is good, is I remind people that they are not the reason for the problem. Oh, okay. Interesting. So we have a system, just to talk about racism, that's the easiest one. <laughs> to uh, focus on. We have a system that was designed 400 years ago and nobody around today did that. Nobody who's here, they could be the most nasty red hat wearing person. They still didn't build the system that we are experiencing. They didn't build this, uh, a workplace that was designed to take care of white men because white men were the only ones in our country who had the right to work and were working, right? There's just kind of these things organically happened. And whether they were done intentionally 400 years ago or not has zero to do with what happens right now. So 
if I walk into a room full of white, white dudes or white women, I mean, it's all of us, especially the liberals, right? We're the worst um, when it comes to not addressing racism. I start with that presumption. You know, you didn't do anything wrong. You didn't build what we have now, but you can help to reconstruct it. You have the power to one, understand what you're doing that's making people feel excluded. And then once you understand that, you can start making some changes and you can do that today, every day. And that I think is really powerful because when, and when you start to talk about, you know, in the most recent wave of public understanding, we start to talk about the fact that we are all racist, that it's not the Ku Klux Klan definition of racism. It's racism in everyday uh, system. It's a system. It's a system designed to benefit some at the expense of others. And I didn't build the system. You didn't build the system. But what am I going to do to affect that system in a positive way? Because I'll tell you, I've never spoken to anyone one-on-one who didn't say, oh, I, I would like to help change that. Everybody wants to change it. But we either don't know how to change it, we get overwhelmed by it, we get defensive, right? Nobody wants to be called racist. And so that's, that's my approach is really, you know, here we are in this system. I didn't build it. My, my parents didn't build it. My grandparents even didn't build it. But we're, that's, that's neither here nor there. Here we are now. What can we do? Does that help? Does that answer your question? Yes. And, I, <laughs> and now, now I want to spend like the rest of the time talking about that, even though that's not the purpose. But part of me does really want to talk about that because, you know, Everyone who is doing okay in this world is benefiting from that system mm-hmm. and perpetuating that system. And so, oh, okay, I'm going to shell. Well, and even people who aren't doing that well are still benefiting from that system and have been duped into believing that, you know, I mean, we wouldn't have had the system that we have today if the, at the time, Dem- Southern Democrats weren't able to convince poor white people mm-hmm. that black people were the problem. Yeah. Right. I mean, our country really should be lined up along class lines. Doesn't that make more sense? Yeah. Right. So have you read Cast, Isabella Wilkerson's new book? No, no. I'll add that to my list with an E at the end. Cast with an E at the end. Yeah. Like the cast okay. system. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Not studio cast. <laughs> right, right. Um, have to remember who I'm talking to. Yeah. So she wrote about the great migration, about basically how black people had to leave after the civil war and mm-hmm. you know, move to typically the northern states and that whole trajectory of their path in this country. And that was her first book called The Warmth of Other Sons. And then the, her second book is about how we really have a caste system here in mm-hmm. this country. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, we always talk about books as it comes up naturally in the conversation, you know, so don't be afraid to say, um, oh, and this book really was pivotal because I firmly believe that as you're going along your path, that people and even books come into your life at the right time. Mm. Like, you know, you're that lawyer, that life coach, you know, like, how did you find that life coach? Why her? Maybe any life coach would have been a good life coach if they asked you that question. But, you know, there Mm -hmm. was something that brought you to her and something that worked in your relationship that brought you to where you are now. You know, it's Mm -hmm. all part of the big interwoven, you know, and then we can get into plan versus fate versus your will versus all that stuff, you know, where it gets murky and mucky. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me, let me mention two books then or three books quickly. Um, Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist obviously is, is, was pivotal for me. There's a tremendous amount of history and research around the invention of the concept of race, which I think Mm -hmm. most of us would, we don't even think about that. That's an invented concept 
in the 1500s and invented to justify capitalism, mm-hmm. right? That's where we miss. I think that's where we miss this. And we have a system that's set up to do what it does. Yes, exactly. That's right. That's right. And in order to justify stealing people from another country and forcing them into a lifetime of servitude and labor, we had to say they're not human, right? We, we, had, to, we had to rescue them. We had to, it's just disgusting. But that, that book was hugely, hugely important for me. I also had to read Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, mm-hmm. because I'm white, right? I mean, that it was important to read and she, she's talking to me and I talk to other white people about this. And so that was, that was very helpful because one of the things that I talk a lot about is white privilege. And I I say to people, you know, if you want a speaker to come and talk about racism, I'm going to send you to a black or brown person. Right. Because that's, that's not my lane. But if you want me to talk about white privilege, well, gosh, I know a lot about that. I got a lot of privilege and I've got in touch with it. Right. I'm also, Love Ijioma Ulo, Ulo, Ulo. That's a pretty every time. I think it's Oloo. Oh, so you go. want to talk about? So you want to talk about race? Oh. Her book is fantastic, and I've, I've seen just it. Recently, but I haven't read that one. Oh, it's good. And I've just recently discovered Octavia Butler. Oh, I love her. I was going to say you probably. I mean, you read all the time, and I'm newer to the reading. It took me a while after law school to get back to reading. I started with like magazines, <laughs> and then um, worked my way into Harry Potter. You know. Uh, but the Octavia Butler is fantastic. I just oh. I just discovered her on a road trip with my mom. Well, I mean, I knew who she was and I am trying to support black authors, especially black women. And so I thought she was fantastic because she's kind of stands alone in the science fiction realm. So I was reading Kindred and oh, I just Kindred, finished it. it. Yeah. Well, so. you will have to have a part two on this after you read Parable of the Sower because of your cultish background and, <laughs> oh my God, she's phenomenal. So, okay. But before we move on from uh, Kendi, let me show you. Oh yeah. Stamp from the beginning. That's yeah. on my next Audible list. This that's, is- That's Ta-Nehisi Coates, right? No, oh, no, it's no, even no. Kendi. Okay. It's, and this is, this is his basically textbook of the whole history of how racism was invented, propagated- dispersed and it's like a fucking bible man i refer to that i'm impressed that you just happen to have that handy i i have a whole stack (laughs) of books right behind where you can't see okay books freaking everywhere and because it comes up so often i mean this you are my i think 18th 19th taping and i think it's come up five six times and okay i think that's a lot it's not maybe a lot for the national discourse but, oh my God, you know, anyone who wants to know anything about how we got where we are, you've got to read that book. You really do. Yes. And um, it's, he's amazing. So anyway. Well, and this, this problem doesn't get better unless people like us are talking to each other about it. Right. That, I mean, I firmly believe that we white people in general have to get comfortable being uncomfortable and having these discussions. And you can ask my kids, oh God, mom, really? You know, we we talk about it all the time. And so that's really, I think that's the power. That is what's different. Right. This time. When I talk to my black friends, my brown friends and and colleagues, they say your engagement is what's different. Not me in particular. Yes. That is what's different. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we can continue this. And the only way that's going to happen is if people like you and I keep talking about it. Right, right, right. So again, I don't remember exactly how we got here, but 
to <laughs> bring it back to the theme. I know you have some incredible life stories and you've mentioned your health already a few times. Yes. So I know you have a health story that has a kismity serendipitous thing to it. So let's start there. Um, health story, kismet. Your dad. Oh, right. Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> so as part of the horrible knee knee replacement, double open, you know, reopening and then cleaning out replacement, they discovered that I had a heart condition, which I didn't know about. And so I had an atrial septal defect huh. that we didn't, I've had my whole life, obviously. And I always thought, oh, I have this weird flutter. And, but when, after the procedure that went terribly wrong, I had started having a heart rate of 180 one night. Oh, wow. Even laying down. Thank you, oh know, thank you Apple Watch, because it turns out it's actually fairly accurate. So I went into the hospital. They, they tried, oh my gosh. So I remember this. I don't know if we have time to talk about this, but sure. I, I remember being in the emergency room. And you know, you're in the little room, and it's got all the windows. And the ER doctor, who is a, I think she was a lesbian, so that was kind of cool, you know, slightly older than me you know, cause I'm still such a spring chicken was, <laughs> was, you know, came by to check cause there's people in the room and ooh, everybody's doing their thing. And over the next 20 minutes or so, she got closer and closer and closer. She was standing by the door. Then she was leaning on the wall. Then she was at the foot of the bed. And finally she was literally standing next to me, almost holding my hand. Hmm. And I said, am I going to die? Like I, I knew that it was bad. And she said, well, everybody dies. <laughs> oh, Wow. <laughs> like the worst answer ever. I thought, oh, we need to send her back to the bedside manner. You know, not tonight would have been a good thing to say, right? But what ended up happening is I had to stay in the hospital for a couple of days and then they did a cardio version, which is where they take the paddles, you know, clear mm -hmm. and they, you know, like in every medical show, clear, you know, boom, and yeah. and your your heart's supposed to come racing back. So what happens for a cardio version is it shocks you back into a normal rhythm. Mm -hmm. when you can't, you know, get yourself back into the normal rhythm, which is what they tried to do with all this medication. And I was really, really sore after that happened. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Oh, but that's how they found the atrial septal defect because mm. they, before they do the shocking, since I wasn't, you know, dying that moment, they went in with a camera to make sure they weren't going to knock loose any blood clots, even though I, I had had a blood clot right after the knee surgery, but I hadn't had any before that. So they found this big hole in my heart, not big, a small hole in my heart, but lots but of any flow. size hole in your heart is bad. And so you could justifiably say big, I get you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's bigger than I would have liked it to be. And I remember seeing the images of the flow and the doctor had said to me, oh, well, you know, we frequently don't fix these. They're fine. And he's pulling up the, you know, he's pulling up the images and then he's looking at the images and I see his face and he's like, "Ooh, you have quite a bit of flow here. Yeah. Mm. We're going to fix this. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but so when they did the cardio version, I was bruised, you know, understandably. And uh -huh. the next morning or two mornings later, it was just before Thanksgiving, I felt my sternum and I thought, oh my God, I'm so, it hurts a lot right here. And it was just disconcerting enough that they kept me in one more day. And my father that night, he was home with my mom and he said, you know, my sternum is sore too. And, you know, I wonder what that is. And it, it caused him to call the doctor. They did a CAT scan and they actually found a small lesion on his kidney. And it turned, okay. it turns out my dad had a little tiny bit of cancer that they never would have found, right? It's not like, you know, it would have shown until it was way too big. Wow. And he wouldn't have had that 
procedure if you know because you know dudes are like ah things hurt it's okay right yeah <laughs> um and he wouldn't yep. have mm-hmm. had that and so now he's fine he's clear they were able to they they took it out his kidney and that's how i can remember his kidney not liver because you can't live without your liver but you can live without one kidney and right so i don't know if he really accredits it to that but i certainly do and it always makes me feel a wee bit better to think about the positives that come from really unpleasant situations so that right. was definitely yeah yeah because you don't know where he'd be right now he probably he could be in denial and you know not find out about a cancer until stage four so that, that's a really right. good way to look at it but yes. i'm I'll have to ask some medical person. I bet you don't know the answer, but why would cancer in your kidney give you a pain in your sternum? I don't know if it was related, but it was related to my pain and it was weird enough that they decided to do a CAT scan instead of a normal, you know, oh, you're fine. Yeah, I have no idea. I think they thought um, he had some lung issues and and Uh he does have lung issues. So that's probably related, but yeah. Okay. Well, you know, just legal disclaimer. <laughs> right, right. We don't know what they'll find. Just go get checked. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, I always joke, you know, if I'd been good at math, I would be a doctor instead of a lawyer. So I don't uh. know anything about medical. <laughs> <laughs> so I know you listened to Pam Martin's mm-hmm. episode. And of course, it was uh, right around the time of RBG and you're wearing your RBG shirt. So I'd kind of like to tap into that story, that episode, especially because she talks about you, you know, uh, what was your takeaway from that? Well, I think that that my interaction with Pam has really been important to my growth because as you said to her, I think you said something about being the right kind of Christian or being a, 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 like a real Christian, a good Christian. Yeah. When, you know, I have run from religion ever since my experience and been very judgmental I mean, I won't even get into it, but really judgmental about people who are religious. Not so much spiritual, but religion, right? Organized religion terrifies me for mm-hmm. good reason. Right. But when I started talking with Pam and she invited me to that, you know, the LGBTQ night outreach, we, we thought about going. I mean, I thought about going and I, that was very weird for me because why would I think about going? I'd never been to anything like that since, since I left Right. And had, you know, years of therapy and it's a wonder I didn't kill myself. Right. Like I'm just really, you know, I wasn't suicidal, but it's a kind of a wonder that I wasn't. And in talking with Pam and seeing, I think, a real model of what Christianity can be or should be, I'm not sure. It was really inspiring. Mm-hmm. And I think what Pam did for me is she really called into question my judgment, my judgmentalness. Mm. Right. Why? what makes me different if I'm dismissing everybody who's religious from what religious people used to do to me because I'm gay. Right. And that was a real gut check. And I spent a long time, I don't know if she even knows this, but I spent a long time thinking through that. And I'm sure she'd be really happy to know that her example really helped me. I think I did tell her this really helped me to think that I need to get to the same place that I am in general with diversity when it comes to religion. And I have. And I think that it's turned me that experience and hopefully the fact that I was willing to dive into it and to think about it and unpack it has turned me into kind of a rabid supporter of religious freedom. So, you know, I am an atheist. Pam had said that I was maybe at the time it was, it was adorable. I'm definitely an atheist. I've come to that very honestly uh, through a tremendous amount of study. And as well, if you remember from a little bit ago, dying several times and not seeing anything, the, yeah, I mean, I'm an atheist and I 
don't want anybody to tell me what to do, but I don't want to tell anybody else what to do. And so with my kids, for example, one of whom is, I think, fairly spiritual, I've taken great pains to make sure that my child feels comfortable making their own choice, that feels comfortable if, because I think some people just naturally spiritual, right? You just have that. And I think it's a gift, honestly, Lauren, if you, mm. if you have that, because I don't have that, right? I don't have that, well, you know, everything happens for a reason, you know, heaven will be great. That I think is a tremendous source of comfort for people. And I do not have that at all. But what I do have now is I no longer judgmental. Uh, I used to think, oh, people are religious are just dumb. But I don't feel that way anymore. And I really, and I think Pam had something to do with that. I really feel like it's not for me to judge other people in where they get their comfort because comfort is a good thing. And yeah, so going to the the sermon and having them make the Scottish the Scottish reference was just ridiculous. Like my wife is from Scotland and not in a way that Americans say, oh yeah, I'm Scottish. No, I mean, like she moved here from Glasgow to be with me and got her green card and we've just filed for her citizenship last week. So that was an incredible feeling of belonging, right? Back to that theme, you know, yeah. to be sitting there in this big, you know, I love what Pam said, you know, we're all dressed up like we normally are. Yes, we do. We do tend to dress and we are very conspicuous. <laughs> and to feel that included, that was really special. And we haven't been back, but we didn't need to, right? It was a wonderful experience. My wife is certainly not an atheist. I don't, I won't speak for her, but so if she wanted to go back to a, a service, I would definitely go with her. And that's new. That That's only in the last, say, five years that I've gotten to that place. So that's, that's really powerful, I think, for, for me, because I spent so long being angry and so long being defensive and so guarded about religion. I mean, if you had, not you, but if somebody else had said to me, oh, you know, we have this great church, would like send me into a panic attack. Mm. And that's not the case anymore. And I think that is real growth. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I just can't praise Pam enough for doing that for not just you, but man, in this time of what religion is, what organized Christianity is, uh, to put it back to where it should be is huge. But, you know, mm -hmm. listening to your story about how you evolved from judgment because of Pam, and I didn't realize that I had sort of reconnected you guys together. Mm -hmm. That was so awesome. Yeah. You know, it just sounds like what you're saying is that, and correct me if I'm putting my own thing on your experience, but that you were too much in pain. It hurt too much to not be judgmental and that you got through that. You came out of the pain and now you can release that judgment. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. You know, they say anger is a secondary emotion, right? It's a defense mechanism. And for me, that anger, that judgment, oh, you're weak if you're religious, oh, you, you just can't be, you're not comfortable with unanswered questions. That's all gone now. I, I definitely, and, I, and I, I've said to myself and I've said to my family and, and others, wow, that must really be great to have that kind of faith to help you in these situations. Because really, when you're in those kinds of, you know, people you love dying or why are these bad things happening, to have that, that's wonderful. And I, if anything, I'm a wee bit jealous. So. so what made you decide that you are atheist as opposed to agnostic? So I love, I love that question because, I mean, really no one knows. Yeah. <laughs> right? So I guess you could say 
on the one hand, everyone's agnostic, right? Because there's no proof. We don't have any proof. We have to take it on faith, right? As, as it were. For me, it really is just that I have had the death experiences and haven't seen anything. And I just am such an intellectual that I just don't believe there can be a, a God in that, in that way. Now, that said, there's been some interesting things that I have read and learned, like talking about faith and science. And the more scientific we get, the more we realize we don't understand. <laughs> we can't explain things. So that is interesting to me, but not to the point where I've shifted myself back to an agnostic. I, I really believe that I have made the right choice for myself. But if I decide, you know, next week I want to become a Catholic or whatever, I will, right? Because I have the, thankfully, I have the right to do that. So how do you handle the concepts of fate and kismet and serendipity and all that through a, an atheist's lens? Mm-hmm. So I think that the way that I look at this is that just because I don't believe in a divine, I mean, I, I real, I'm, obviously I realize there's lots of different definitions of God, but I don't believe in a divine source, a divine focus doesn't mean I don't believe in invisible connections between people and paths that seem like they have to merge. And I can't remember the name of the movie, but there was a director. He did a bunch of Jim Carrey movies. And do, do you know who I'm talking about? And he, he walked away from his kajillion dollar mansion in Hollywood and lives in a trailer and takes his bike. He had a no. horrible accident. Uh, no. He had a horrible, horrible accident. And we'll find it so you can put it in the, in the links. But he started questioning everything. And he spent a couple of years talking to every different religious leader he could find and, and these thinkers and doing all of the science around it. And he, you know, he talks about things like the fact that we have these random number generators around the world. That's what they do is they generate numbers. And right after 9-11, they all, all over the world, they generated the same numbers. Wow. Yeah, right? And that if you put uh, electrodes into yogurt that has bacteria in it, it will react to people who are sad. What? Now, it doesn't react it doesn't react the way we think it likes to not have a smiley face, but that it has a perceptible reaction to the emotion in the room. And we know that heartbeats change when we're close to somebody else. We we know this, right? We yeah. know this scientifically. And that doesn't trouble me from a from a religious aspect because of course there's stuff we don't see. Right? Like, yeah. Of course there's stuff that we don't understand. When I was a kid, they, they said I had ESP, right? But I mean, what does that mean? I, I think that there's there's always been people who are more or less perceptive of other people. And I think anyone who's ever been in love can or had a kid can understand or been around a kid that you can't explain things. Yeah. You just you can't. And that doesn't trouble me. I think that's the thing. Is I'm comfortable with that. I feel like there may be ghosts. There may be, I mean, who knows? Who knows what there is? I don't know what there is. But I don't feel that there is a unifying force. Now, that said, you've heard me say things like blessed or thank the universe. I feel that it's important to be grateful because what I know what you put out into the world comes back to you. I know that in the terms of energy and things like that, but that's not inconsistent for me with not believing in a God. So did I answer your question? I mean, did I? Totally did. And I think okay. that so many times in life, particularly the public dialogue, people want to put people in a box, religious, anti-religious, or mm-hmm. 
whatever. And so they don't get to have their full breadth of experiences and thoughts and beliefs and that presented in a what it means to me kind of a way. And so mm. I wanted to make sure that you got a chance to answer that dichotomy and explain how it makes sense to you. It might not make mm -hmm. sense to anyone else. I'm sure it will, but you know, it doesn't <laughs> matter if it does because that's your experience. And I think that's kind of part of your meta-inclusive that, and mm -hmm. when I found out about your new practice, I, you know, I went to the website, which is adorable and the superhero theme and all that, you know, and Thank I love you. And I love that you put Trissa's superpowers, you know, um, <laughs> because I, you know, I say one of my superpowers is bringing people together yes. and networking. hundred percent. That is one of your superpowers, Lauren. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that this podcast is kind of like my own version of your practice in a way. Well, I'm going to have to um, quickly listen to every single other episode because the ones that I've listened to so far have been amazing. Oh, And I, I love that. I mean, the, one, of the, one of my superpowers is making people feel comfortable. I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think that's really important because especially when you're talking about difficult things, I want to make people feel comfortable and I want to be able to explain information in a way, not in a pedantic or, you know, like simple way, but in a way that people can understand. When I was a practicing, you know, heavy duty lawyer, for example, I made sure that I never included any language in things that I wrote that would make people feel excluded. Right. Mm. Don't use Latin when you don't need to. Well, nobody speaks Latin. It just makes people feel stupid or makes them think you're insecure because <laughs> you use yeah. Latin. Right. right. Now, uh, I'm sure there are times when you do need to use Latin, but not that often. So, but I think, I, I don't know how you want to edit, but I, I definitely, um, I would love to talk about the one kismity thing that I think is the most difficult to explain. Yeah, go for my, it. With my wife. Is that okay? Can we yeah, talk go about for that? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So when I was in a, a difficult relationship after my kid's other mom and I separated, I was feeling frustrated creatively. So I decided to start a blog. And at the time I was going to write a blog about beer. And the idea was I was going to try a beer every day for 365 days, kind of like Julia Child. Besides me. Oh, oh, oh. Julia <laughs> right. I, right. Yours is way more elevated than what I <laughs> <laughs> But after about three days, I realized, oh, I can't do this. I, can, I cannot keep this up. This, I mean, not that I don't like to have a drink, but having to have a drink every day and something different, I thought this is no good. So yeah, it makes started, it work, first of all. That's right. That's right. That's right. Like when, you know, straight couples are trying to have a baby, like, oh my yes. gosh, we took all the fun out. Of it. Yeah, yeah. So I started writing about what it was like to be me, to be a masculine presenting self-identified butch lesbian in a world. And I am very attracted to feminine women, which is a very particular kind of not as common as you would think subset of the LGBTQ plus community. And so I started writing about fashion and what it's like to wear a bow tie and what it means to be served in the hallway and how do you feminine lesbians flirt when they have no idea if people are gay, things like that, or that invisibility that they experience. And so for, I will say it's about 10 years, I wrote, I wrote this blog and just enjoyed it, enjoyed the heck out of it. And after I went through a, that breakup where I had wanted the creativity, uh, the creative outlet, my therapist, you know, I'm from California, right? So we got to have therapists mm -hmm. said, well, why don't you write down all the things that you would like to see in your future partner? Mm. And so being a writer, I thought, okay, of course I'll do that, but I have to share it with the world because right. that's, what, that's what we do. That's what us theater people do. 
share, you know, write your pain down and then share it. And so I, I wrote this basically a want ad to the universe. And I think I even address it to the universe. And I basically say, here's who I am. Here's who you are. And here's what we would be together in the, in the, you know, if I could draw you out of clay or mm-hmm. shape you out of clay. Right. And this was one of my most popular posts ever. And I'm, I'm sure that's because of the honesty, right? That's always very appealing. And all these people who I don't know were like, pick me, pick me. And it was hilarious because that's not what I intended at all. I didn't think anybody would want to react in that way because I'm not that full of myself. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had all these people commenting and, you know, oh, you know, trying to get hit on me, which is weird. I was like, you don't know me. You know, why would you? <laughs> At the time, it wasn't even a real picture of me because I was still having some, you know, an, anonym, an anonymity around the blog. And so Kirsten, who's my wife, responded to the post and she said, she, she just put a, a comment in the blog, which she never does, by the way. And she said, I've never commented on a blog before, and I don't think she's ever commented on one since. She, she saw my post, and I'll tell you what she said first, and then I'll tell you how she found it, which is so weird. She, she said, thank you so much for what you've written. Some of the things that you're looking for are qualities I possess that didn't know they were appealing, and it makes oh. me think I will not spend my whole life alone. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, it was really lovely. It was very sincere and very genuine and not, you know, pick me, pick me, you know, uh, here's my, you know, here's my profile pic. Right. So I, I responded, you know, thank you so much for that. And then she followed me on Twitter and I saw her photo. Well, not to be too shallow, but I thought, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's beautiful and exactly the, you know, type of woman that I'm attracted to. And so we started chatting and we were DMing the kids, you know, I know they don't mm-hmm. say that anymore, but we were DMing and I didn't know where she was from, but uh, no. So I saw her photo. I said, wow. And then I saw that she was from Scotland and I, I, I swear to you, it had nothing to do with it, but I had already planned a trip to Scotland like a month or so before that, before I talked to her, cause I needed to get away and I was, you know, spending time on my own and adventuring. And so I had planned a trip to Scotland where I'd never been before. Cause literally I was like, well, where do I want to go? Where's my timeshare? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, you know, that's random, right? I totally. I don't have family there. I didn't have any connection to Scotland. My 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 family, I think, is Irish, and but I didn't go to Ireland. I went. I was going to go to Scotland, and so I told her. I said, "Oh my gosh, you know, I'm I'm coming to Scotland in March. This was in d- December, like 31st or so, when we were talking." And I said, "That's so crazy." And she said, "Oh my gosh, well." you should, you know, call me, we could meet up and I could show you around town. And I said, well, if you were to show me around town, I don't think I would see anything but you. And that was how, that was how we started, you know, really having this discussion. And, and the thing that's so crazy is when she tells the story, she talks about the fact that she never looks at blogs. She never reads any blogs whatsoever. She was in Scotland kind of coming into her own. There are not a lot of butch lesbians around Scotland, which seems odd to me, but she, nonetheless, she couldn't find any. And so a friend of hers had shared a post I wrote, a terrible post, a terrible, a terrible post that I wrote about minivans never being cool. And <laughs> which was funny at the time, but it's not, you know, ind- indicative of my you know, general style. And then she had read that post and then she read another post about what if the Mayans, I hope the Mayans are wrong because it was right around the time of the Mayan calendars. Yeah. yeah. So we were going to all die. And finally, when she finished that one, she got to this other post, the universe post. 
And the only reason that she looked at it, I guess, is because she saw this heat mapped picture of me, you know, from the side with my mohawk. And she said, oh, she looks interesting. And so that's where she read the blog. She was like patient enough to read through two that weren't that relevant to get to this one to then think, oh, that person is appealing to me. And I just, I just feel like that is insane that those levels, I guess what I'm trying to say is it can't possibly be chance, which goes against, I realize everything that I'm saying about divinity, <laughs> but it just feels like those things, they're too attenuated. There's too many steps that needed to happen in that sort of mm-hmm. sliding doors, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow mm-hmm. movie yeah. mm-hmm. to, be, to be random. So, you know, that's, that's, right. that, that's my kismet universe. Thank you, universe story. I do thank the universe a lot. Like I said, I, I just feel like I want to say thank you. So I give the universe. But when people, so when people used to say, I'll pray for you, it used mm. to make me angry, mm. right? I don't need you to pray for me. Even if it was a good thing, right? Like, oh, your family's struggling. Somebody's sick. I'll pray for you. And now when people say to me, I'll pray for you, or can I pray for you? I always say yes. Yes, please. Because why wouldn't I want more positivity coming my way? Right. Now, if if I thought they were going to pray for me to be straight, that would be different, right? Then I'd be like, no, fuck off. But the, you know, the idea that people would be pulling for you, regardless of how you label it. Yeah. That's, I'm all about that. I love that. Well, and that goes back to belonging because they're clearly saying, uh, you're in my, as we say now with COVID, you're in my bubble and I'm going to. I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to fight for you and I'm going to, you know, do what I can for you at least. So I never thought of it that way. It's interesting because you, I think you've kind of changed my, my world. I'm going to spend the next few days or weeks thinking about this, how belonging is my theme song, right? Yeah. You know, everything. I'll have to get it, you know, tattooed on me in Ooh. some way. Yeah. I think a belong tattoo would be fantastic. <gasps> but, but what language? I don't maybe know. El- but- maybe Elvin. That's nice. <laughs> But I'm picturing, I'm picturing just in English because you could make the L your mohawk. You'll have to show me. Oh, I'm the worst sketch artist, but I'll try. Uh, That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Yeah, I definitely, yeah, I definitely do enjoy my mohawk. I had it before it was cool, by the way. But I still have it now, even after it's not cool anymore. (laughs) So I'm going to wrap up on this because Simon just shaved off his mohawk and he's shaved off a few times now over the years, but um, but when he showed up to his mother's funeral, and I won't get into the whole thing, but oh, actually, no, the first time he showed up to one of his family events in England was his sister's wedding, which was in 2012, which is just when he started growing out his mohawk because he kind of went back and forth and that was like, all right, I'm doing it. Um, he showed up and his niece said to him, what, are you nine? <laughs> no one, no one over the age of nine should have a mohawk. But you know, she she was a teenager, and you know, of course, very opinionated. I have no idea where she stands on this now. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, yeah. no, I, I well, I said I'm a terrible marketer, but I think in some ways I've done I've done a good thing with my brand is really associated with bow ties and mohawks, so I stick with that. Although post COVID, now it's gray and not blonde because I just can't bring myself to go take a risk of a hair salon yet. Well, you can do that at home. Just do the tips. At least yourself would be cool. Yeah. Well, I did that once in high school and I don't know if I knew you at that point, but it turned orange. This crazy like sun in. Do you remember sun in? Oh, totally. I had sun in here too back then. No, but they have much better products now. They They do. do Blue and purple and stuff. I've done all those. Yeah. Um, 
Oh God, you just said something I wanted to say. You know, this is like the thing we have to end on and frick, it's gone. No, you said, you said uh, mohawk and bow tie. I think mohawk, yeah. bow tie and superhero cape. Um, that is one of the logos on my website. <laughs> I thought so. I get, yeah. I get like impressions. I'm like, I think I remember that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So guess, I mean, part of me is still no capes, no capes, no capes. Didn't you see Incredibles? But I did. I love it. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Yeah. But capes are so dramatic. They are They're so wonderful. You know, I, I, or my Jedi robe, which I yes. routinely put on. It's on the back of my bathroom door. I wear it like a robe nice. and I have my life-size lightsaber. So I'm just a big kid, really. Aren't but, we all though? Yeah, but you're a big sweetheart of a kid who has somehow figured out the perfect combination of emotion and brain. Oh, I think what you're a more nice thing to say. I think you're more emotion. I think maybe that's why you can really relate to people where they are and see what they need instead of maybe what should be said or you know quote unquote mm. should. But yeah, maybe you're like sixty five percent emotion. That's interesting. I, I love. I have to think about that. I have to unpack that a bit. Yeah, I used to I used to think, oh, I'm terrible with my emotions. But if you ask Kirsten, she'd be like, oh, my God, how much longer are we going to talk about your emotions? So <laughs> but uh, I need to process this. I need to talk it through. Uh, yeah, it's funny that you ended up with a Scott because Scots are not known for that. <laughs> no, no, they are not. And, uh, you know, it's hilarious. Right? She she will say sorry for anything under the sun except for hurting my feelings. <laughs> Like, you know, sorry, I bumped into you. Sorry, this, sorry, that. And then I'll be like, well, I'm waiting for an apology. And she's like, well, you're going to keep waiting. <laughs> like, it's so stubborn. <laughs> oh, I love her. Gosh, All right. Well, yes. I will let you go and go give the, go give her and the dogs and the kids, everyone a big hug and kiss for me. And I miss Thank you. you and I, I miss love you so Daniel. much. I love you so much. And I'm so sorry. But I'm so sorry. I didn't get to see you when I was in Colorado. I just adore you. And I, as soon as we can, I really want to bring Kirsten out so we can see you. Yeah, that'd be yeah. fantastic. We yes. have to have, you and I will have our own little time and then the Brits can have their own little time. Yes. Okay. Yes, actually, that's bringing me to tears thinking about it. So, oh, what's well, a good place to end then? So I love you. Thank you so much. Well, Revelers, thank you for joining me and Tris on that little journey. And I really hope that you've enjoyed it. Please, please, please subscribe. Pick your favorite podcast app and subscribe. I've got a whole bunch more stuff coming before the end of the year, and I'm already taping for January 2021. So please subscribe so you don't miss any awesome stuff. Have a good week, Revelers.